This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today concerns a nagging question. Where did the coronavirus come from anyway? Was it weaponized by the Chinese? Did it occur naturally because of evolution or some random mutation? Well, the United States government has denied funding for what is called gain-of-function research to perhaps weaponize a deadly virus like this. Now it turns out that, oops, egg on the faces of NIH officials. A top NIH official has now admitted that, yes, the United States taxpayer did, in fact, fund to the tune of $600,000 research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was, in some sense, doing research to make the bat virus even deadlier than it really was. So we'll say a few things about what does it mean if U.S. taxpayers may have partially, unknowingly, funded the creation of one of the worst viral epidemics in modern times. And then I'd like to say a few things about immortality, digital immortality. The media, of course, was mesmerized by the fact that William Shatner, a 90-year-old Hollywood movie star, was sent into outer space. Well, it turns out that William Shatner did more than simply record his episode being in outer space. He recorded four days of intense questioning about every aspect of his life, tape recorded using artificial intelligence to create a digital copy of William Shatner, a digital copy that will last forever. Is this the future, digital immortality, when all of us live forever in digitized form? And let's say a few things about Jurassic Park. The movie, of course, was a series of blockbusters about the fact that it may be possible to find uh, cells of dinosaurs encased in amber, frozen for 66 million years plus, and then revived in a genetics laboratory to bring back the dinosaurs. Well, there's now been a big find. It turns out that a crab was encased in amber 100 million years ago, fully intact, every hair in place. This is the oldest totally intact crab ever found, and perhaps it gives hope for those people who believe that one day we might be able to bring back the dinosaurs. Or for that matter, there's a group at Harvard that wants to bring back the mammoth. The woolly mammoth may be brought back one day, and who knows, maybe even the Neanderthal. Maybe life forms that disappeared during the last glaciation may come back to walk the surface of the earth. We'll talk about that and the ethics of bringing back ancient life forms. And speaking about the past, many textbooks say that Leif Erikson and a band of Vikings actually reached uh, Canada way before Columbus, but that was hearsay, rumors, folklore, just talk. Now we have, in some sense, a smoking gun. Using physics, 
Scientists have now found traces of wood that dates back 1,000 years exactly. Exactly 1,000 years ago in the year 1021. We now realize that, yes, there were colonists in the New World, <clears throat> Vikings, which colonized a piece of Canada. And then we'll ask another question. Where did the Native Americans come from? Did they come from a land bridge from Alaska, from Siberia, Japan, Mongolia? Where did the Native Americans come from anyway? Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. You know, for over a year, there have been rumors, innuendos, about the fact that maybe, just maybe, the coronavirus was weaponized, or maybe it escaped from a laboratory, a laboratory that was experimenting on weaponizing or making it more dangerous. Who knows? Chinese officials, Chinese officials are tight-lipped. All the information is locked and sealed. We simply don't know. However, the question is, did the U.S. taxpayers help to inadvertently fund the creation of this virus? Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci and others from the NIH have adamantly denied that they have funded the creation of this deadly virus. They admit that they partially funded the Hunan Institute, but not to make it more dangerous. Well, now we have a new admission from a top NIH official, Lawrence Tabak, which seems to contradict everything that's been said. That, yes, indeed, U.S. taxpayers, to the tune of $600,000, did, in fact, partially fund research to make the coronavirus more deadly in the laboratory. Well, there have been so many twists and turns to this story. It's like a detective story. So let's now summarize what is known and what is not known, what is conjectured about the origins of the virus. First of all, we don't know. The Chinese may know, but the Chinese aren't saying anything. We don't really know for sure where the virus came from, but let me summarize what most scientists believe is true. First, the coronavirus probably came from Wunan, but not from a food market as it was once believed. So where did it come from? Well, it probably came from a bat virus, a horseshoe bat virus, by analyzing the genetics. We see that that's the closest genetic neighbor to the coronavirus, which terrorized the world. And why Wunan? Well, either by accident, or perhaps there's a reason, there are two top virology institutes in Wunan known to be studying the bat coronavirus. Is that a coincidence? And then the next, we now know that there were laboratories there that were experimenting on the coronavirus. They were doing what is called gain-of-function research. You'll be hearing a lot about that. Gain-of-function research means conducting experiments which may actually increase its ability, the ability to infect and sicken and perhaps even kill humans. And the U.S. NIH has admitted, yes, indeed, it partially funded this research on the coronavirus, but the NIH adamantly refuses to say that it funded gain-of-function research. In other words, the NIH says, yes, it did partially fund research on the virus, the coronavirus, 
but the research did not involve making it more deadly. And in fact, Dr. Anthony Fauci has adamantly denied that U.S. funding, that is money from U.S. taxpayers, funded any gain-of-function research. Now, of course, the Chinese government, they know, but they're stonewalling any investigation. So these allegations are just that, allegations. But now, here's the latest twist. Just a few days ago, a top NIH official, Lawrence Tabak, publicly admitted for the first time that U.S. taxpayers, yes, indeed, helped to fund gain-of-function research on the bat coronavirus. The research money, in fact, was funneled through the Echo Health Alliance, a U.S. nonprofit agency. And where did the money go? Well, $600,000 went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. In fact, uh, Lawrence Tabak goes into details as to what they were actually doing with this money. In this research, the Chinese took mice in two categories. The first category of mice were infected with a modified virus. Now, the virus has what is called a spike protein. The spike protein is like a key. It then inserts this key into a receptor in a healthy cell called the ACE receptor. So you got that? The spike protein, a spike on the virus, binds with the receptor on a healthy cell, cell called the ACE receptor. Well, this report says that they found that the modified virus had increased ability to bind with healthy cells, making them more infectious, more deadly. This is a tremendous admission. The details of a gain-of-function research on a deadly virus in a laboratory, unfortunately, with results that cannot be independently confirmed. So what's the conclusion from this rather stunning admission from a top NIH official? Well, maybe nothing. You see, you need a smoking gun. You have to connect the dots. Just because they were doing gain-of-function research, making the bat coronavirus more deadly, doesn't necessarily mean that the virus jumped out of the laboratory and then infected the, the world's population. There's no direct smoking gun. However, let's take the worst-case scenario. In the worst-case scenario, let's say this virus was, in fact, weaponized. In fact, inadvertently weaponized, but it was an artificial creation, an artificial creation of the laboratory, Perhaps it accidentally infected one of the workers who then spread the virus around the world. Now, unfortunately, this rather important result may get lost in the political football of congressional hearings. Tremendous grandstanding is, of course, one of the byproducts of this, but it's something to think about. The fact that your taxpayer's money may, I'm not saying did, but may in fact have partially funded this virus. We'll wait and see. Also, immortality is in the news, digital immortality. Of course, kings and queens, the emperors of old, have searched for the fountain of youth unsuccessfully. Even though the great kings of old can conquer huge areas of the globe, 
they could not conquer the wrinkles on their face. And so they sent fleets, armies, to search for the fountain of youth without any success. This is an old tale. In fact, the oldest written documented story of all time is called The Tale of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was a Mesopotamian warrior on a trek, and it documents many of the signposts that he visited, searching for the fountain of youth. Yes, the fountain of youth is the oldest search in recorded history. And in fact, people search for immortality even on a small scale. Some people admit that immortality they can attain in the form of having children. Cary Grant, the famous movie star, was once asked, why marry and why have a child so late in life? And he said, why? He wanted a piece of immortality. He wanted something to carry on even after his days were over. Well, now it may be possible to use the digital revolution to give you digital immortality. William Shatner, a few weeks ago, not only became the oldest man to be shot into outer space as a tourist, William Shatner, in some sense, is one of the first people to become digitally immortal. In other words, for four straight days, he sat in front of a camera answering hundreds, hundreds of tiny, minuscule, silly questions that a tourist may want to ask him about his life, his stories, his anecdotes, his careers, his thoughts, anything that comes to mind. Then a computer program, an artificially intelligent computer program called Conversa, broke up the interview in pieces so that each piece could be seen as the answer to some hypothetical question. So this means that in the near future, you can go to this website ask a question about his childhood, about his first movie, about all the th signposts of his life, and this artificially intelligent program will give you a snippet of an answer to each of these questions. This could be the future, digital immortality. In fact, I would love to talk to Einstein. Very soon, I think, somebody will digitize everything known about him. In fact, I would love to talk to a digitized Einstein, a program that went through all his records, his speeches, his theories, his books. I would love to have a chat with him. And one day, instead of going to the library, reading up on Winston Churchill, you'll perhaps sit down and talk to a holographic image of Winston Churchill. You know, when you see advertisements for things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you get the idea that maybe, just maybe, you have a connection with your distant ancestors. But let's face it, most of the times, perhaps your ancestor left one line in a book in a church when they were born, and another line in that same book in that same church when you died, and that's it. Two lines in a church book. For most people, that's all they got in the past. Wouldn't it be great to sit down and have a conversation with your ancestors to find out how they dreamed and how they overcome hardship? Wouldn't it be great to talk to them? 
Wouldn't it be great if you could sit down with your descendants hundreds of years in the future to tell them about your dreams and your hopes in the present era? So in other words, the digitization of people could become commonplace, even if you don't want to be digitized. Think of it for a moment. All of us leave a digital footprint, whether we like it or not. Our credit card transactions, uh, where we go on vacation, um, all the movies that we see, all that's documented someplace, and an artificially intelligent program can sniff out that information and create a rough carbon copy of who you are. And so, in other words, in the future, digital immortality could be a standard feature of life. History books can come alive. All of a sudden, you can talk to these people and find out all the trials and tribulations that they experience. So, digital immortality is coming. And speaking about the past, many of people have seen the movie Jurassic Park, and the whole idea of bringing back the dinosaurs, well, that's science fiction. But the basic kernel of the idea has some merit. You see, amber is a liquid secreted by certain plants that can encase life forms for millions of years. In fact, just recently it was announced that scientists made an astounding discovery. They found a piece of amber with a crab in it, a small crab, and they dated that crab to a hundred million years ago. That is incredible. A complete crab, every hair in place. We've never seen this before. And we know the age of it by using things like carbon dating and radioactive dating. We can determine the age of these things. And they go back to the era of the dinosaurs. Just think about this. This crab existed, coexisted with the dinosaurs, and there we have a piece of it in amber. Now, it turns out that dinosaur DNA, well, we don't have any. It would be sheer luck if we were to find something like that. But there is one thing that has been done in museums. It turns out that if you take the leg bone of something called the hadrosaur, which is a very common plant-eating dinosaur, and crack it open, sometimes you find soft tissue. That's right, soft tissue inside the leg bone. This is amazing. At one point, we thought that the fossilized remains of the dinosaurs were just that, fossils. All the soft tissue was replaced by crystals, by sand, by different minerals. But now we know that soft tissue from the dinosaurs actually survives. Well, since then, of course, scientists have begun to crack open other leg bones of other dinosaurs and analyze the soft tissue. Unfortunately, they found no DNA. Sorry about that. We're not going to have Jurassic Park anytime soon. However, in the soft tissue, they found amino acids. Amino acids that are found in reptiles and birds. This is amazing. A chemical analysis of the leg bones shows that, yes, organic materials can in fact be preserved for tens of millions of years. This is incredible. And it means that, in principle, Jurassic Park 
well, highly unlikely, but it may be possible that one day somebody will crack open a fossilized bone and pick up tiny amounts of DNA, maybe fragments, and assemble these fragments like a jigsaw puzzle to create the DNA of a dinosaur. Sound far-fetched? Actually, not far-fetched at all. This has already been done for the mammoth. Now, the woolly mammoth roamed over North America and Asia during the last ice age, and it turns out that soft tissue has in fact been found within the ice in Siberia. From that, scientists have been able to extract DNA, fragments of DNA, but then they've been able to piece them together. Piece them together to form the DNA of one complete woolly mammoth. And so at Harvard, there's a group already seriously looking at the possibility of bringing back the woolly mammoth. Taking these cells, these DNA, and then putting these DNA back into a cell, an egg cell of a female elephant, and having the female elephant give birth to a woolly mammoth. In fact, this can actually be done for the Neanderthals. Believe it or not, the complete genome of the Neanderthal, in fact, has been found. It's a gold mine of genetic information. And yes, sooner or later, somebody is going to propose the idea of bringing back the Neanderthal. And that raises lots of ethical questions, too, because the Neanderthal is actually quite close to us, genetically speaking. They can feel pain. They can have emotions. They're not that distant from us. And in fact, some people at Harvard have already said, yes, the basis of being able to bring back the Neanderthal is known. But that raises a question. If you bring back a Neanderthal child, what do you do with it? Do you put it in a zoo? Or do you let it go to Harvard? What do you do if you bring back some of our ancestors in the past? Perhaps they too can feel pain. Perhaps they too can dream. Perhaps they, too, have goals in their life. What do we do with that? Well, this is uncharted territory when we start to think about the ethics of bringing back ancient life forms. But some scientists have already speculated that maybe in the future we'll have a zoo, a zoo of formerly extinct animals. Think about that. Roaming in a zoo where we have scenes from the last ice age, where we have the woolly mammoth, the saber-toothed tiger, and all the other mythical animals of the last ice age. Is that possible? Well, yes, it is possible. But then the question is, should we do that? And speaking about the past, we've been able to use evidence from the past to reconstruct historic events. Many people believe, for example, that the Vikings, and Leif Erikson in particular, Brave the elements to begin the colonization of Iceland, Greenland, and maybe even Canada. But let's face it, a lot of it is just folklore, legends, tall tales handed down from generation to generation. Where is the beef? Where's the smoking gun? Well, now we think we have a piece of the smoking gun. You see, we have wood fragments from colonies in Iceland, Greenland, Canada that seem to indicate 
that seemed to indicate that they were created by the Vikings. But how really, how old are they? Well, it turns out that one fragment could, in fact, be traced back in time. You see, in the year 992 AD, a thousand years ago, there was a gigantic solar explosion on the sun. These things happen, we think, perhaps every few hundred years. Uh, the last recent event was the Carrington event of um, 1859. Well, it turns out that in the year 992, there was a gigantic solar explosion. It was so great that it actually affected the chemical composition of carbon on the planet Earth. And so by looking at tree rings, looking at tree rings where we have the telltale mutation of carbon, you can date when that eruption took place with regards to this wooden fragment. Sure enough, we find the tree ring that has encoded within it the, the mutated form of carbon going back to the year 992. And from that, by looking at tree rings, they can actually date when the fragment was then used by the Vikings. It was, in fact, in the year 1021, a thousand years ago. Exactly. Exactly a thousand years ago. We think that, yes, we have tangible proof now, tangible evidence of what happened when the Vikings came to Canada hundreds of years before Columbus. Some people say that, well, what did Columbus do? He got lost. Yes, he got lost, but he opened up a whole era. And of course, historians have mulled over the implications of that. But now we realize that even hundreds of years before Columbus, the Vikings had already settled in places like Iceland, Greenland, and Canada. And speaking about ancient history, there's a new debate reviving around the question of where did the Native Americans come from anyway? Well, if you take a look at the map of the world, we realize, first of all, that genetics tells us that humanity probably started in Africa, probably started in Africa, but then the Great Migration took place roughly 70,000 years ago as modern humans, who look just like us, went through the Middle East and then went into Central Europe, and at least one branch at that point split. Some of them went west toward Western Europe and became the Europeans. Another branch fissioned off and went into Asia, becoming the Asian people. Some of them kept on going into Alaska and into the Americas. And we find fragments of this because 10,000 years ago, we had the Ice Age. Well, the question is, where did specifically the Native Americans come from? Until recently, many archaeologists thought that the Native American people came from Japan. The ancient people of Japan called the Jomon people. Perhaps they are the originators of the Native Americans. Well, by analyzing teeth, analyzing the teeth of the Jomon people and the teeth of the Americans and DNA, it turns out that that theory is now being put on the back burners. So the surviving theory still is that the Native American people came in waves, waves, at least three waves, 
perhaps from Siberia and Mongolia. And then from then, they were able to then enter through Alaska into Canada and to colonize the New World. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to talk about human nature with controversial psychologist Steven Pinker of Harvard University, author of a number of controversial books, including The Blank Slate. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the second half, we're going to bring on Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard University, Professor of Psychology and a very well-known but very controversial figure in the domain of, well, social politics. We're going to talk about his famous book, the Blank Slate, where he talks about the relationship between things that are hardwired at birth by our genes and things that we learn and are accustomed to by experience. In other words, where do we draw the line when it comes to behavior? How much of it is programmed at birth by our genes and how much is learned by society and by teaching? Well, he takes the position that the blank slate, well, maybe it went too far, that we have to understand the genetic component to human behavior. Now, the pendulum swings back and forth. For example, in the 1930s, the pendulum was swinging in the other direction. And of course, the most horrendous example of this was the rise of Nazi Germany. The Germans, the Nazi German philosophy, said that there's certain inferior genes, certain inferior peoples that should be wiped out. So that's when the pendulum went way, way off to the right. However, some people think that maybe the pendulum is going too far to the left. That is, the left seems to think that in some sense we are infinitely pliable, that simply by education we can bring people up to the highest levels of society, that we are not prisoners of our genes. Well, what about the data? Perhaps the most authoritative look at this is the twin studies, where you take twins that, of course, are born of the same mother, they're genetically identical, but they're raised in different social environments. And then you follow them for years and years, you give them all sorts of tests, and what you find is very interesting. You find that, well, about 50% of behavior seems to be genetically programmed by looking at identical twins. 
but 50% of behavior is also learned as a consequence. And so there's no definitive answer on the question of the blank slate, but we'll ask Professor Steven Pinker about that. He has yet another controversial theory. A lot of people looking at the question of global warming see doom and gloom, doom and gloom. However, Professor Pinker is actually more optimistic on this question of social violence. That if you look at history and you look at the wars, you look at all the massacres that took place and all the bigotry that infested human civilizations, ideologies for millennia, and then you compare it with today. Yes, there are all sorts of problems, but he argues that the problems of today are nothing compared to the problems that our ancestors had to face. Social violence on a mass scale. Anyway, with us today once again is Professor Steven Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University, author of a number of books, including The Blank Slate. And also, if you want to learn more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. We have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest book is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. It's about what I do for a living. I work on something called string theory, which we think is the final theory, the theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. The first question for you, Professor Pinker, is why did you become a cognitive scientist? I mean, after all, when we're little, uh, little boys play with G.I. Joe dolls and He-Man dolls, and, and you, here you are looking at the brain and pushing the frontiers of linguistics and, and how the brain functions. So how did you first get interested in brain science? Uh, I think it came from a, an interest in human nature, and part of it was growing up in the 1960s when people were discussing the optimal form of social organization, as if you could redesign society from scratch. And that depends a lot on uh, what, what you think makes people tick. So uh, how the brain works uh, was uh, a question, at least implicitly, that was in the air. Uh, the problem was that it had a kind of squishy or airy-fairy feel to it when it stated at that level of generality. When I found that in college that there was a field called cognitive science that could actually study what makes people tick in the lab and gather data and formulate testable theories, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Okay, and why did you decide to write a book called The Blank Slate? Well, I, in, in studying uh, how the mind works, in studying how language works, uh, often you come up against objections that really don't come from the scientific claims themselves, but rather come from the some fear that certain kinds of scientific claims are politically or morally dangerous. And I think that influences not just the public in how they react to the science, but sometimes the scientists themselves, their areas they don't want to go into, their questions they don't want to ask or conclusions that they resist uh, because of these, these political and moral colorings. So I thought it was best to put them out into the open, to confront what the implications are and are not about different discoveries about uh, the human mind so that we can separate the politics from the science. 
And speaking about the politics, there are trends. Uh, things come and go. At one point, we talked about the noble savage. At other points, we talked about the ghost in the machine. And at other points in, in history, people talked about the blank slate. So tell us a little, little bit about those three and how they've sort of come and gone over the years. And what are your particular points of view? Yes, all three of, of these ideas uh really came from the uh, Enlightenment and the discussions among philosophers at the time over uh, the human mind and indeed over political arrangements and and theological implications. So I come up with catchy names for these three ideas, which I think have uh, continued to be in our culture a kind of secular religion, something that people believe in even if they don't uh, invoke God explicitly. The blank slate is the idea that we are not born with any talents or temperaments and that the entire structure of the mind comes from culture and socialization and society, that we have no innate tendencies whatsoever. The noble savage is the corollary that says that anything that uh, we find dislikable about human behavior, selfishness, lust, uh, greed, fear of strangers, uh, desire for power, competitiveness, are all products of corrupt social institutions and are not uh, part of our nature. Uh, And that humans in a more natural state, such as the one enjoyed by hunter-gatherers, free from government and social institutions, would naturally live in harmony and peace. Finally, the third idea is the ghost in the machine, uh, which is that we are, in addition to our bodies and brains, um, immaterial beings called souls, uh, or minds or spirits, and that you can't uh, reduce human thought and behavior to the physiological activity of the brain, but there's some extra invisible uh, ingredient, the soul, which infuses us and uh, allows us to make choices and experience the world. Now, this, of course, has uh, social repercussions in some sense that if you have a criminal, some people would say that you can reform that criminal, that perhaps their criminal behavior was a byproduct of poverty and that the human personality is malleable. Other people may say, bah, humbug, that there are some innate, innate things within us and certain things are doomed to fail. So where do you fall in this political spectrum and what's your take on those three philosophies? Right. Well, certainly criminal behavior is not a particularly uh, sensible scientific category. Uh, if it were, then uh, probably two-thirds of people under the age of 25 would, would be we, criminals for downloading music on the Internet, for example. Mm-hmm. But if we look at particular uh, kinds of behavior that, are, uh, that we can kind of define independent of, of criminality, such as um, of, of violent tendencies, um, on the one hand, um, there are many variations in violent tendencies that have nothing to do with genes or, or uh, uh, innate tendencies. The fact that societies can go from uh, being militant to peaceable in, uh, in a generation shows that it can't all be in the genes. You and I had an earlier conversation in which you pointed out that uh, Japan, for example, went from highly militaristic to one of the world's most pacifist societies in a very short period of time. Uh, And and, uh, changes like that have happened many times in history. On the other hand, within a given society, there are differences among people in their willingness to inflict harm. Uh, Criminologists note that even in uh, very violent parts of the country, such as some American inner cities, a small number of the people 
commit a disproportionate number of the violent acts. And also, uh, so it means that within a culture, some of the variation uh, depends on the individual, and studies of twins, such as identical twins reared apart, and comparisons of identical and fraternal twins show that some of that variation is uh, due to differences in genes. Moreover, all people, I think, have uh, uh, the capacity to react violently in certain circumstances. We see that whenever um, uh, uh, the force of law and government disappears, uh, violence uh, breaks out, uh, suggesting that even in social conditions in which people inhibit their tendencies toward violence, they're there um, waiting to break out if not uh, properly constrained by the cultural context. So the answer, as in almost all questions of nature and nurture, is that it's an, uh, an interplay of both, and it depends whether you're talking about the an entire ethnic group, about individuals, about different uh, times in history that you're comparing, and so on. Okay, let's be specific about some of the hot-button issues that you mention in your book, like feminism, raising of children, violence. Let's get right into some of these hot-button issues, including violence. Now, a liberal may approach this issue by saying, if you take a look at an unemployed male in a poor area, uh, well, there seems to be a gene for violence, and that is the male gene. However, the way to deal with it is not to have uh, some kind of eugenics, but to give them a job. Uh, studies have shown that when uh, male criminals get married, uh, their crime rate drops enormously, and the key to getting married is having economic stability, and the key to that is jobs. So liberal would say perhaps jobs is the way to deal with the problem, and however a conservative may come in and say, now wait a minute, uh, I mean, sometimes you can't rehabilitate people. Uh, sometimes it's a waste of money to do these things. Well, where do you fit on some of these things, and what do you think should be done on the question of violence in society? Well, I think uh, the, the positions aren't mutually exclusive, and I think both of them have merit. Certainly, uh, there, there are many data, um, including studies of changes in hormones, that show that uh, when men uh, hitch up and get married, their tendency toward violence goes down for reasons that many evolutionary psychologists have discussed, such as that uh, men, uh, when they uh, are competing for a mate, will uh, strive for a reputation for toughness and status and esteem, which will include uh, inflicting revenge on anyone who disses them uh, or uh, compromises their interests. And so if you have uh, men in a situation in which they're more likely to get married, they'll spend less of their energy competing on the streets, and indeed their testosterone levels and other hormones will go down in response. Certainly the idea that uh, providing economic uh, uh, conditions in which men can find jobs would uh, likely lead to a reduction in the crime rate, although criminologists will also say that there's a lot of fluctuation in the uh, crime rate that can't be explained by uh, economic conditions, such as in the last uh, three years, there's been a reduction in the crime rate, even as the economy has gotten worse. Uh, there's a lot of the fluctuation of crime rates that no one understands, uh, is my understanding. But in, in addition, um, holding all of that constant, whether the crime rate is high or the crime rate is low, there are some individuals who uh, are have uh, an utterly callous attitude towards the suffering, suffering or well-being of other people. These are the people we call psychopaths. There is evidence that psychopaths can't be rehabilitated, uh, that they, psychopathy may be partly genetic, partly due to unknown causes, 
And in cases like that, um, I think one has to not be too romantic and say if, if we release someone who has uh, raped or tortured or killed uh, and we don't know what to do with them, we might be better off preventing them from harm, harming uh, other innocent women or children or uh, adults in the future. And uh, the willingness to incapacitate someone who has a high probability of harming someone else doesn't preclude uh, attention to more general social and political changes that might lead to a reduction in crime statistically across the whole country. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, A liberal may come in at this point and say that, well, the bulk of crimes are committed by unsocialized uh, males of single mothers. And at each point, they are social problems. The fact that there is a single mother, the fact that you have an unsocialized male son of an of a single mother. Uh, these are things that could be rectified through social policy. Conservatives say, not so fast, not so fast. There are innate human characteristics which are very difficult to unwire. Uh, well, what are your thoughts about uh, whether or not it's possible through social policy to change uh, these unsocialized males of single mothers, or whether that's really the problem at all? Yes. Well, there, there are a number of issues. I mean, again, these aren't mutually exclusive, but there may be some individuals who are more prone to violence uh, in, in just about any social situation. There may be some that are uh, more prone to violence in some circumstances, such as after uh, growing up in a uh, tough neighborhood where you've got to defend your interests by a reputation for uh, machismo, uh, whereas in another circumstance they might uh, enhance their reputation by verbal argumentation or by uh, competing in uh, music. Um, Going back to the liberal-conservative divide, though, in, in, uh, in fairness to conservatives, the standard uh, response I, I anticipate to your question would be that, uh, indeed, single motherhood is a uh, cause of crime, and that the cause of single motherhood is the our, our welfare policies that allow women to uh, support babies without uh, getting married, therefore uh, giving men a free ride. They can get uh, all the sex they want without bearing the responsibility of marrying the mother of their children and supporting them, if you've got the government taking over the role of husbands and fathers, there'll be less of a demand for husbands and fathers, and you'll have more single mothers and hence more crime. I think that is the more standard conservative response to your question. Uh, Concerns about uh, eugenics and uh, bad seeds and uh, violent genes are actually pretty rare among conservatives uh, over the past few decades. Okay, let's also talk about the institution of war. Uh, A liberal may say that perhaps we should try more negotiations, uh, perhaps more reason. A conservative would say, bah, humbug, look at human history. Uh, War seems to be a constant, and it's a dangerous world out there, and might makes right, and nations only respect force. So what are your thoughts on the question of war? Well, I probably am not, not very well equipped to uh, give up uh, much of a general answer. Uh, I, I certainly think that, we've, that um, the, uh, depending on the adversary, either of those strategies might be uh, appropriate. The thing about violence is that it's, in, it, it's an example of what game theorists call a prisoner's dilemma, uh, that often the best solution would be for both sides to back down simultaneously and to negotiate their differences. 
unfortunately can also happen that if one side goes to war and the other one backs down, the uh, victor will get the spoils. And so even though uh, it can be to everyone's advantage if both sides back down at once, if one side refuses to back down, the other side may have little choice but to uh, confront them head on. Ideally, what you would like is enough knowledge of the lessons of history and of the way in which everyone could come out ahead by dividing the contested resources that both sides would back down simultaneously and everyone could have the best possible outcome. The problem is, if you're facing an adversary who fails to see it that way, uh, in that case, unilateral pacifism can be the worst possible. Uh, possible outcome, such as in the case of, of, say, opposing Hitler during prior to the Second World War. So I think there's no general answer. It depends on the particular guy on the other side. Uh, one just has to realize that the, these two options might be uh, differently uh, desirable, depending on who you're facing. Well, several years ago, there was a controversy about, I think it was a government-funded conference on genetics and violence. Now, um, of course, there is a genetic link to violence, and that is the male gene. However, African Americans and civil rights activists uh, said, whoa, we don't want our taxpayers' money to fund this because it gives you the indication that perhaps races uh, could be, uh, quote, more prone, unquote, genetically to become violent, and that here was government money fostering what they thought was a bogus idea. Well, what does the science say about the question of race and violence? Yes. Actually, that conference was on the biology of violence, not uh, not specifically on the genetics of violence. Mm-hmm. And so it also looked at, at uh, effects of abuse, effects of, um, of mothers ingesting drugs during uh, pregnancy. Uh, it, the approach of that conference was actually to look at violence as a public health problem, like uh, tobacco or environmental uh, pollutants. And in fact, it had a, a rather liberal agenda. The people opposing it really didn't know what it was about and really uh, spread rather paranoid rumors about it being uh, about racial differences in tendencies toward violence, mm-hmm. which, which none of the participants uh, had actually planned to talk about. Uh, I don't think we have uh, any reason to believe that there are uh, innate differences among ethnic groups or races in their propensity toward violence, uh, simply because if you look, take a historic view, cultures can switch from militant to pacifist or vice versa in a remarkably short period of time. I think uh, if if, uh, 100 years ago, one would have said that one day the uh, Germans, the Japanese would be the world's uh, strongest pacifists, and there would be a uh, nation of pugnacious soldiers uh, from uh, the descendants of of Jews in the European ghettos, uh, they would have laughed you out of the room. But that's the situation we have now, and it shows that the uh, differences in ethnic groups are almost certainly due to differences in the circumstances that, that they face. So, therefore, what is genetic? What is hardwired into the brain? Some studies, I think, on Dutch uh, families have shown that there is a streak of violence in some families, but part of that is related to testosterone levels that are controlled genetically, we think. So, therefore, if the question of violence is malleable, that societies can become warlike one day and pacifist the next, then what is hardwired in the brain? Well, I, I tend to avoid the word hardwired because it implies that given a, uh, a, um, a, a particular organism, they're like wind-up dolls or uh, robots that can only behave uh, in the same way across every situation. I think that the what is innate 
is a set of strategies for dealing with the environment that you face, uh, that you're currently facing, and that in different environments, different uh, psychological responses will be triggered, uh, which will lead to more or less violence depending on the social circumstance. One of them will be the degree of threat that you perceive. Another will be the presence of uh, an armed authority, a police force or government that you can call in to settle your scores for you. Another will be whether you're, uh, you feel that your uh, honor has been compromised, whether you lost face, and that uh, if you don't regain respect and face, uh, you'll be a, a punching bag or a sitting duck. When that perception is triggered, people are likely to engage in violence just to prove how tough they are. When they uh, feel that they don't have to show off a pugnacious side in order to defend their interests, when they can call 911 for the police to show up, then they're less likely to challenge each other to duels or to uh, kill each other over uh, uh, trivial insults. Uh, so that, those are some of the uh, uh, kind of the if-then rules that we're equipped with that uh, don't make anyone uh, or very few people likely to burst out in violence across the board, but can lead to violence being triggered if the circumstances are right. Okay, now let's talk about another hot-button issue, and that is gender, and that is the role of women. Uh, In your book, you actually make a differentiation between two kinds of feminism. So could you elaborate now on the question of the blank slate and feminism? Yes, there's uh, many people believe that feminism must be committed to uh, the doctrine of the blank slate, that uh, if if we come into the world with nothing uh, in our minds or brains, then there can't possibly be differences between little boys and little girls that are due to uh, biology. And therefore, that's the best way to ensure gender equity. Therefore, according to this line of reasoning, one should resist any tendency to say that men and women have any innate differences. Or, just to be on the safe side, resist any tendency that anyone has any anything innate whatsoever uh, in order to maximize the um, uh, the chances of ensuring gender equity. I, I dispute this line of argument uh, largely out of sympathy to uh, feminism rather than hostility, that I don't think feminist ideals should be held hostage to what comes out of the lab on uh, the source of, of gender differences. And I borrow a distinction from a philosopher, Christina Hoff Summers, who distinguishes between equity feminism and gender feminism. Equity feminism is the classical liberal position associated with the first wave of feminism, that discrimination against people on the basis of gender is, uh, is evil and is uh, counterproductive to society, that no one should be discriminated against based on the traits of an entire gender. Uh, gender feminism, on the other hand, is the belief that men and women are born uh, identical and that all differences between the sexes come from socialization and that there is a vast male conspiracy to hold women down, which is the source of all differences between the sexes. The problem with gender feminism is that it's an empirical hypothesis. As the hypothesis begins to be disproven, uh, in fact, it's already been disproven, uh, it makes feminism uh, vulnerable. Uh, Anti-feminists could say, well, the basis of feminism that 
boys and girls are identical has been refuted. Therefore, let's go back to the 50s. Uh, I think the way to protect feminism is to say that questions of equity, of non-discrimination, are independent of statistical differences between the sexes or their source, and we should separate our commitment to equity from our empirical studies of where sex differences come from. Okay, well, let's talk about little boys and little girls. Uh, most liberals think that uh, the propensity for girls to, to gravitate toward Barbie dolls and boys toward He-Man dolls and G.I. Joe is cultural. However, then they have children of their own. And then they realize that whatever it is, it starts awfully early, awfully early that little tykes will begin to gravitate toward certain kinds of gender-based toys. And the question is, is that a byproduct of our media saturation, that everywhere you go you see images of women and men in certain roles? Or is there really something in the human brain uh, that means that boys and girls have different outlooks toward toys? Uh, I think there is something in the brain. One uh, bit of evidence is the experience of parents who try, who do everything in their power to present uh, sex-reversed role models to their children and then discover that children left to their own devices will just gravitate towards the same uh, activities. Another is the fact that you see even in other species sex differences, that uh, vervet monkeys, the, uh, the young males prefer to play with objects compared to the young females. They certainly haven't been exposed to television. A third kind of evidence is that the direction of the sex differences is universal across cultures. If it really was arbitrary which gender did which activity, you'd expect some cultures out there in which it's the little girls that uh, engage in rough and tumble play and play fighting and the little boys who engage in uh, mock social activities, but it never works out that way. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for exploration. Our special guest today was Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard University, author of a number of books, including The Blank Slate. And if you want to know more about my show, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And you may want to pick up my latest New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a theory of everything. So once again, for exploration, good day.